Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Former Chinese Communist Party leader Jiang Zemin has died at age 96. Jiang is responsible for single-handedly starting the persecution of Falun Gong in China. Riot police deployed in China's Guangzhou as protests escalate, while Western leaders urge Beijing to change its approach to COVID-19 in the protests. Protests at a Foxconn factory in China could threaten production of iPhones. A former employee says workers were cheated by promises of higher pay. Two members of a militia group are found guilty of seditious conspiracy in connection with January 6th. A former FBI special agent says that kind of verdict is significant. We bring you more analysis. Former Chinese Communist Party leader Jiang Zemin is dead. Chinese state media say he passed away Wednesday afternoon in Shanghai. He was 96. Jiang Zemin was the communist regime's top leader from 1993 to 2003. He was selected by Deng Xiaoping after the Tiananmen Square massacre. He died from leukemia and multiple organ failure. Jiang is considered responsible for single-handedly launching one of the most brutal persecutions against a faith group in modern times. That's for his lead role in starting the persecution against Falun Gong in 1999. In the years since, human rights organizations say tens of millions of Falun Gong practitioners in China have been subject to mass surveillance, arbitrary imprisonment, forced labor, torture, and organ harvesting. A 2017 report from Freedom House lists several motives behind the persecution. Those include the CCP's intolerance of faith groups, the nationwide popularity of Falun Gong, and what was perceived as ideological competition by the regime. By state estimates, as many as 100 million Chinese had taken up the practice by the late 1990s. The persecution is ongoing. And protests have escalated in the Chinese city of Guangzhou over the country's strict COVID-19 rules. And today's Jessica Beatty tells us more. Chinese authorities recently deployed riot police to quell protests in Guangzhou. That's according to online videos released Tuesday. They show large numbers of riot police in hazmat suits carrying shields. In Shanghai, video released Wednesday shows residents confronting COVID staff. These scenes of protest have become common across China over the past few days, as anger about strict COVID-19 rules appears to be boiling over. Chinese officials Tuesday said they'd respond to the public's concerns by being more flexible about the rules. Meanwhile, China's foreign ministry Tuesday pushed back against the UK's criticism of Beijing's handling of the protests. On Monday, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said instead of listening to the people's protests, the Chinese regime chose to crack down further, including by assaulting a BBC journalist. China's foreign ministry spokesman accused Britain of distorting the facts. But leaders of the free world seem to agree with Sunak. UK Foreign Secretary James Cleverly said Tuesday, it's important to protect media freedom. And it's incredibly important that journalists are able to go about their business um, uh, unmolested and without fear of uh, attack. Meanwhile, the head of the International Monetary Fund, Kristalina Georgieva, says China should drop its zero-COVID policy because of its impact on people and the economy. It is tough on people. It is also negatively impacting the Chinese economy through spillovers to the world economy. Georgieva suggested Beijing target restrictions instead of imposing massive lockdowns. 
That way, she said, China can contain the spread of the virus without significant economic costs. And the United Nations Monday said it supports Chinese demonstrators' right to protest. We believe in the importance of people's right to, uh, um, uh, to peaceful assembly uh, and association, their right to demonstrate peacefully and urge the authorities to guarantee that right. Since the protest started, security forces have detained an unknown number of people and stepped up surveillance. Although Chinese authorities have eased some controls, they show no sign of ending their larger zero-COVID strategy. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. Tech giant Foxconn has been racked by days of protests at its vast plant in Zhengzhou, China. Workers demonstrated over pay, poor conditions, and strict lockdowns. The crisis could threaten output at a plant that makes 70% of all iPhones. Reuters tracked down one former worker to find out what lay behind the unrest. Mr. Ho, who didn't want to give a first name, said he and many others were attracted by promises of higher pay. Foxconn was offering attractive terms as it grappled with strong year-end demand and China's health crisis curbs. But Ho says trouble began when new hires were required to do 10 days in quarantine and pay terms were abruptly changed. At first we thought to address the issue because we didn't voluntarily go into quarantine. And then we wanted to ask whether quarantine could be counted as working days. And then for the first gathering, we just wanted to discuss these issues. And then we didn't know there might be some people trying to make trouble. So as the situation developed, we assembled and then went down from the dormitory to the gathering. And after, it became what it was. The Zhengzhou plant is essentially a city of 200,000 workers. Since October, Foxconn has enforced a closed-loop system due to renewed health crisis concerns. That essentially cuts the facility off from the outside world. But Ho says workers also lost all faith in what the company was saying. I left because management was still fairly chaotic and nothing they said ever counted for anything. So things could change suddenly. We spoke out at night to fight for our rights. But the response could alter by the next morning. Some of us went to fight for our rights, while others just asked questions. After managers answered our questions, we returned to our dormitories, only to find out that the announcement that appeared on apps was different to what they had told us. Other workers that Reuters spoke to aired similar grievances. Foxconn declined to comment, referring only to past statements. The company has apologized for what it says was a pay-related technical error. If the problems persist through December, analysts say it could cost output of around 10 million iPhones. We have more updates on the mass protests unfolding in China. Chinese police have begun to track down protesters and increase their presence to curb the protests. According to reports, Chinese police have started targeting people who took part in the mass protests against the regime's COVID-19 policies this past weekend. Two protesters told Reuters that Beijing police contacted them and asked them to report to a police station on Tuesday. A student also said their college asked if they had been in an area where a protest happened and were asked to provide a written account. A woman in Beijing told AFP that she and five of her friends were contacted by the city's police asking whether they attended the protests. 
At least 10 universities, including ones in Beijing, have sent students home. Tsinghua University in Beijing also closed some student dorms. The schools say this is to protect students from COVID-19, but many speculate the measure is meant to prevent further protests on campus. On Monday and Tuesday, police officers patrolled streets in Beijing, Shanghai, and other Chinese cities to prevent further protests. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has warned Apple against removing Twitter from its app store. He said it would be a raw exercise of monopolistic power and said such a move could merit a response from Congress. He also called out the Czech giant for aiding the CCP. And today's Daniel Monahan has the story. I'm glad things are changing at Twitter. Speaking at a press conference, DeSantis addressed reports that Apple is threatening to remove Twitter from the App Store because Elon Musk is opening it up for free speech. He said many accounts being restored were suspended because people were providing accurate information about COVID that conflicted with so-called experts. And Twitter, the old regime in Twitter, their response was to try to just suffocate the dissent. And, and, And Elon Musk knows that's not a winning formula. And DeSantis lambasted Apple for restricting use of its airdrop feature for users in China. There's reports that Apple is not allowing the protesters to use this airdrop function where they're trying to communicate. That obviously is providing aid and comfort to the CCP. Apple says they made the changes to airdrop to stop unwanted file sharing and that they plan to roll out the changes globally. Protests against the CCP COVID-19 lockdowns have spread throughout the country. Don't be a vassal of the CCP on one hand and then use your corporate power in the United States on the other to suffocate Americans and try to suppress their right to express themselves. DeSantis also spoke out on China's zero COVID policy and said that draconian COVID policies need to go to the ash heap of history where they belong. This CCP has a maniacal desire to exert total control over its population. Zero COVID is really just the pretext for them to do what they want to do anyways. Musk spoke to the feud with Apple in a tweet yesterday, writing, quote, This is a battle for the future of civilization. If free speech is lost, even in America, tyranny is all that lies ahead. Apple did not immediately respond to requests for comment. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Since the protests erupted in China against zero-COVID policies over the weekend, demonstrations outside China have also spread like wildfire. One group held a rally protesting the Chinese regime outside the Chinese consulate in Chicago Tuesday evening. Let's take a look. On Tuesday evening, a group of protesters chanted slogans outside the Chinese consulate in Chicago. The protesters criticized the Chinese Communist Party's zero-COVID policy, censorship, and dictatorship. Many of them were Chinese students from universities in the Chicago area. This sophomore student, who wanted to be anonymous, mocked China's zero-COVID policy by wearing a hazmat suit. She's upset about the loss of lives in a fire in Urumqi, in Xinjiang, China, due to the COVID lockdown. I was like incredibly outraged by the what happened in Xinjiang, what happened in Urumuchi. 
She praised the bravery of the protesters in China. It's just incredibly brave for like every single Chinese like in, inside of China to be doing the protests. I think we should like as Chinese citizens outside of China, we should follow up to them. Not only the students protested, Tibetans also joined. Lakpa Latrasang, a Tibetan living in Chicago, said he supported the people suffering in China, Xinjiang, and Tibet. I'm here to support the Chinese people, asking for the democracy, freedom, human rights. Some demonstrators held white papers, a symbol of defiance against the Chinese Communist Party. This student, who wanted to conceal her identity, criticized China's zero COVID policy, which has taken away Chinese people's fundamental human rights. People can't live anymore. Many people have lost their jobs and income source, but they still need to pay rent, live and eat. I think we've been cornered into a dead end. This is our last voice. I hope our actions will bring hope and inspire courage in more people. The students were not optimistic about the impact of the protests, but they still wanted to speak up and leave a mark on history. Reporting by Angela Moy. NTD News, Chicago. Just ahead, a new Pentagon report on the power of China's military. It says the communist country will likely have more than a thousand additional nuclear warheads by 2035. And a rare spectacle in Hawaii draws onlookers. The world's largest active volcano, Mauna Loa, erupts for the first time in decades. We'll have the details soon when we return. Welcome back. Now on to an update surrounding the January 6th Capitol breach. A jury has handed down verdicts on two members of the militia group present that day. Those include seditious conspiracy and obstruction of an official proceeding. Joining us now to discuss is Mark Ruskin, a retired FBI special agent with over 20 years of experience working in undercover operations. He's also the author of the book, The Pretender, My Life Undercover for the FBI and former assistant district attorney in Brooklyn, New York. Great to have you with us, Mark. Good to be here, Kevin. A jury found Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers Militia Group, guilty of seditious conspiracy in connection with the Capitol breach on January 6th. Can you explain the significance of this? Well, this is a rarely used uh, Civil War era charge that uh, is only utilized in exceptional circumstances and has been utilized here and there over the past uh, century. Uh, the uh, successful prosecution of a seditious conspiracy charge, I would suggest, is a fairly significant event. Uh, most times it doesn't, it does not result in a successful uh, conviction. It's been used to, uh, with Puerto Rican nationalists, with white supremacists, and other groups over the years. So let's zoom in on the case here. The defense counsel pointed out in their closing arguments that unknown provocateurs broke through the Capitol doors first. In your view, was there a balanced assessment of the evidence in this case? Well, I, I, I would suggest that the fact that the jury took several days to deliberate, and, and this in particular, that they came back with different results for the different defendants indicates that they did look fairly carefully at the evidence. If, they, if it was a rush verdict, or you would expect all the defendants to be convicted of the same charges or all to be acquitted of the same charges. So the fact that they took a nuanced approach 
and convicted Rhodes and the uh, Florida leader of the group of the highest charge and the others of lesser charges indicates uh, from a legal point of view that they did look closely at the evidence. So, Mark, what do you make of some of the defendants testifying in their own trial? Well, I think that's an important issue to uh, examine in terms of determining uh, why the outcome was reached of, of in a guilty verdict. Defendants, as you know, are not obligated to testify just the opposite. They have a constitutional right to remain silent. The fact that they chose to testify is a big gamble because it opens them up to cross-examination and often uh, an individual who's testifying and the defendant uh, can, uh, who's not uh, experienced can look nervous, can confused, and can essentially harm their case by testifying. So this was a, a gamble on their part, which may have backfired. I see. It's an interesting point you make there. Now, what is the difference between seditious conspiracy and treason? Well, treason is, is one notch higher. Uh, treason would involve actually taking steps to, uh, to overthrow the government of the United States and often involves uh, foreign power as well, has national security implications. So here it's one notch lower where what they were accused of is conspiring to use force to essentially obstruct the uh, functioning of the government. The U.S. attorney said the government does not have to prove the Oath Keepers had a detailed plan to breach the Capitol and to meet in person to discuss the alleged scheme, that it was enough for them to have an implicit agreement and mutual understanding. What do you make of this? I think that that's uh, essentially, from a legal point of view, correct. The uh, a conspiracy can be formed in just a moment. Essentially, what the government has to prove is that there was an agreement to commit certain acts. The agreement doesn't have to be at a specific age or a specific maturity or a specific point in time. The fact that an agreement was reached and if it, if it can be proven that it was reached and then that there was use of force was part of the agreement. Without, in seditious conspiracy, there has to be force. If there's no agreement to use force, it's a lesser charge. Very good to have your analysis today. Mark Ruskin, retired FBI special agent, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Kevin. The Department of Defense has released its annual report on the power of China's military. The report says the Chinese Communist Party could have more than 1,500 nuclear warheads by 2035. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. The new Department of Defense report breaks down the Chinese Communist Party's military and security strategy. The report names the CCP as the biggest threat to the U.S. and to the free and open international system. One area in particular is the Taiwan Strait, which is the body of water between Taiwan and mainland China. Earlier on Tuesday, the CCP said it organized its naval and air forces to drive away a U.S.-guided missile cruiser, claiming that the U.S. ship had no right to be there. Pentagon spokesperson General Pat Ryder said the claims were false and that the CCP is trying to establish a new normal. Whereas uh, U.S. and international ships and planes have operated in international airspace uh, or in international waterways for decades and then suddenly changing and saying, no, this belongs to us and now you're violating uh, our sovereignty. Again, it's trying to change the narrative, change the status quo, and in fact, fabricate a situation that 
previously all would agree did not exist. And so again, this is why it's important that we will continue to sail, operate and fly in those areas. The report says China currently has 400 nuclear warheads and the communist country will likely have 1500 nukes by 2035. America currently has about 3,700 nuclear warheads, with about 1,700 currently deployed outside of the United States, according to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute think tank. The U.S. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, says the CCP wants to be the number one power in the world by 2049. He explained that there are lots of lessons learned from the war in Ukraine. And one of the things people are learning is that war on paper is a whole lot different than real war. And when blood is spilled and people die and real tanks are being blown up, things are a little bit different. There's a lot of friction and fog and death in combat. And, and for someone who has, for a military that hasn't fought in combat since uh, fighting the Vietnamese in 1979, they would be playing, uh, you know, a very, very dangerous game to cross the straits and invade the island of Taiwan. The Pentagon's report can be found at defense.gov. Jason Perry, NTD News. A woman has pleaded guilty in the disappearance and killing of U.S. Army Specialist Vanessa Guillen. 24-year-old Cicely Aguilar is the only living suspect in the murder case. Guillen disappeared in Fort Hood, Texas in April 2020. Her remains were found over two months later. Authorities say Aguilar helped her boyfriend sexually harass Guillen before her death. Her boyfriend was Guillen's supervisor, Army Specialist Aaron Robinson. In January of this year, President Joe Biden signed into law the I Am Vanessa Guillen Act, making sexual harassment a crime for members of the military. The DOJ said Aguilar has pleaded guilty to four charges, including one count of accessory to murder after the fact and three counts of making false statements. Her date of sentencing hasn't been set. She is facing up to 30 years in prison, plus a fine of $1 million. An Arizona judge dismisses an election lawsuit filed by Republican Attorney General candidate Abraham Hamaday. Only 510 votes separate the candidates. Hamaday and the Republican National Committee filed the lawsuit in Maricopa County Court on November 22nd against Democrat candidate Chris Mays. The lawsuit alleges errors and inaccuracies at voting locations during the election process and requests judicial intervention. The goal is to ensure the candidate who, quote, received the highest number of lawful votes is declared the next Arizona attorney general. But a Maricopa County Superior Court judge says the lawsuit was filed prematurely and must instead be filed after Arizona certifies the election. The state is set to do so on December 5th. Maricopa County officials have acknowledged issues with printers on Election Day. Some printed ballots were too light for the tabulators to read. Onto an unexplained fire, five vehicles that the U.S. Secret Service rented burst into flames on Monday. They had returned the cars to the airport after President Biden's Thanksgiving trip. The Nantucket Airport confirmed the fire took place in the rental overflow lot and posted a photo of the charred vehicles. A Secret Service spokesman told NBC News that the cars were all rented from Hertz. He also said Biden and his family did not ride in any of the vehicles that caught fire. They only transported Secret Service agents and staff. He added that the Secret Service was not involved in the fires and had no information on why it occurred. The vehicles included a Chevy Suburban, Ford Explorer, Ford Expedition, Jeep Gladiator, and an Infiniti QX80. The Expedition was under battery recall. 
The Biden administration plans to auction off nearly one million acres off the Alaskan coast in December. It will be used for oil and gas drilling. The sale is part of a provision in the Inflation Reduction Act that Senator Joe Manchin insisted on. Estimates show the area could produce nearly 400 million barrels of crude oil and 300 billion cubic feet of natural gas. That's once drilling actually begins. New offshore leases can take years to bring online. The U.S. has been facing high oil prices and strained supplies. The president blamed the gas and oil industries for the energy crisis and on November 3rd asked them to drill more. Though personally, he has often stressed his position against more drilling. At this point in his term, Biden has leased less land for drilling than any president since the 70s. Hawaii's Mauna Loa volcano has erupted for the first time in nearly 40 years. The eruption of the world's largest active volcano is attracting onlookers to a national park for first-hand views of the event. But it also brings back memories among some Hawaii residents who have experienced volcanic eruptions in the past. Currently, no lava is threatening any homes or communities, and no evacuation orders have been issued. But the lava could eventually reach neighborhoods on the eastern side of the island. It could take over a week for molten rock to reach populated areas. This is a wonderful eruption. This is a rare time where we have two eruptions happening simultaneously. Uh, This is more than a spectacle um, to the people of Hawaii and to many others. This is a very sacred event that we are watching. Keep on getting a lot of questions about should tourists come. It's actually a great time to come. Uh, People are here. I mean, you're seeing some of the most unbelievable sights uh, ever. And you don't have to go up to the Saddle Road. You can see it from Hilo. You can see it from Kona. You can see it from Kotlu. Uh, Waikoloa people are reporting. And they're putting up pictures that are just unbelievable at night uh, of, of the views. Mauna Loa is spewing sulfur dioxide and other volcanic gases. Combined with other particles, these form a volcanic smog called VOG. Residents are urged to cut back on outdoor exercise and activities to minimize the risk of inhalation. After years of preparation, a team of Georgia Tech researchers and students will watch their small satellite leave Earth and begin its mission to the moon. SpaceX will launch Lunar Flashlight on Wednesday from Cape Canaveral, Florida. The Georgia Tech team will then pivot to its role as mission control. Fourteen operators, including six undergraduate students and eight graduate students, will staff the control center and set a small lab in Atlanta. The team will check the satellite systems, run through scheduled propulsion burns, and set it on its path to the moon. It will take the satellite about three months to reach its science-gathering orbit. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, NATO says Moscow is using winter's cold as a weapon of war. The alliance has pledged to step up its support for Ukraine. And concerns in France over a sedative given in retirement homes during the COVID-19 pandemic. A statistician says the drug has caused 6,000 deaths. More shortly here on NTD News Today. Cold weather as a weapon of war. That's what NATO allies say Russia is using against Ukraine. Here's the story. NATO has pledged to boost its support to Ukraine. It announced on Tuesday that it would help Kyiv rebuild energy infrastructure that's been heavily damaged by Russian shelling. That's after NATO's chief said Moscow was using the winter cold as a weapon of war. 
Russia is uh, using brutal missile and drone attacks uh, to leave Ukraine cold and dark this winter. Russia has been carrying out heavy attacks on Ukraine's power grid almost weekly since October. Kyiv says it's a deliberate campaign to harm civilians and calls it a war crime. British Foreign Secretary James Cleverly accused Putin of trying to freeze the Ukrainians into submission. I don't think it will be successful. In fact, I know it won't be successful because they've shown a huge amount of resilience and we will continue to, to support them through these difficult months. Russia acknowledges attacking Ukrainian infrastructure but denies deliberately seeking to harm civilians. Meanwhile, soldiers on the ground in Ukraine say they're starting to struggle as winter begins to bite. Heavy rain and falling temperatures are making conditions even grimmer along the front lines. Some military analysts say they expect Ukraine will try to keep up the pressure on Russian forces over the winter to prevent them from digging in and settling. Turkey said today that it welcomes progress by Sweden and Finland towards NATO membership, but it would like to see more concrete steps from the Nordic countries. Sweden and Finland applied to join NATO in May in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but NATO member Turkey raised objections. It cited security concerns related to the outlawed Kurdistan Workers' Party and over the Nordic state's ban on arms exports. The three countries signed a memorandum in June that lifted Turkey's veto while requiring Sweden and Finland to address its remaining concerns. Sweden and Finland then reversed the ban against exporting military equipment to Turkey. The Turkish foreign minister today said, quote, We welcome these developments. However, we haven't seen any concrete steps taken toward extraditing criminals or freezing terrorist assets. Signs that Beijing may be secretly supplying weapons to Russia. Ukrainian media Defense Express says Russian cargo planes fly to China almost every day. Some planes even turned off transponders to avoid being tracked. The past week saw around 10 such flights. These planes reportedly belong to Russia's Volga Dnieper Airlines. The Moscow-based company ships oversized and heavyweight air cargo. Chinese footage shows one such Russian plane landing at the airport in China's Zhengzhou City. The video says the plane was coming to pick up military equipment. Zhengzhou is a major logistics and industrial center. It's also home to the production facilities of Chinese defense giant Norinco. A French statistician has raised concerns over the prescription of a sedative drug in retirement homes during the early months of the COVID crisis. He claims the drug, which was used under a government decree, was responsible for the deaths of 6,000 people, which have officially been attributed to COVID. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has the story. Rivotril is a sedative drug used to treat seizures. In March 2020, during the COVID crisis, the French Health Ministry allowed its use under a palliative protocol in retirement homes. The decree said COVID patients suffering from respiratory distress and who were not to be resuscitated could receive an injection of Rivotril. The drug was intended to alleviate their pain. In an interview with the French Epoch Times, statistician Pierre Chaillot says 6,000 people died as a result of this protocol. Giving two vials of Rivotril to an elderly person to relieve their pain can be estimated to have resulted in 6,000 excess deaths. 
And we have 6,000 excess deaths in the EHPAD nursing homes during the same time period. These deaths in the EHPADs are so enormous over this period that there are almost no other deaths in my statistics. During a hearing at the French Parliament on the management of the COVID pandemic, a nurse testified that the Rivotril protocol was used without any clinical studies proving its efficacy. Another nurse testified that the protocol was adopted as an emergency measure. So that's the scandal that we are seeing. It's that the authorities eventually decided that these people had something. They decided without knowing it, because there were no statistics available that these people had something, something incurable that could not be cured, and therefore they were going to be slowly assisted to death. According to testimonies at the hearing, it is not clear whether the retirement homes contacted the families to obtain permission to inject the drug. Pierre Chaillot says there are many clues showing the protocol is responsible for these deaths. So there is a time-based correlation between decision-making and mortality. There is a correlation in terms of numbers. We find exactly the same numbers between the number of doses given and the number of excess deaths. And we also have a geographical correlation between the places where this directive, this political directive, has really been applied with great zeal. Figures from December 2020 showed that 44% of patients who died from COVID in France were residents of retirement homes. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Facebook parent company Meta has been fined nearly $280 million by Irish regulators over privacy breaches. The country's Data Protection Commission said the company infringed sections of the EU rules known as the General Data Protection Regulation. An investigation last year delved into reports of data from over 500 million users being dumped online. The data was found on a website for hackers. It included personal information of users from over 100 countries, such as names, Facebook IDs, phone numbers, locations, birth dates, and email addresses. Meta has said that the personal information was extracted using data scraping via the platform's contact and search tool. The tool is commonly used to search for other users there via their phone numbers. The company said it had cooperated fully with the Irish watchdog. According to a Meta spokesman, the company hasn't yet decided whether to appeal. Two leading figures in the crypto sector have died unexpectedly this past week. This comes after the death of 29-year-old crypto giant Nikolai Meshegian in Puerto Rico in late October, and the deaths are sending shockwaves in the financial sector. 30-year-old Tianten Colander was the co-founder of Hong Kong-based crypto company Amber Group. His company confirmed on Sunday that he died unexpectedly in his sleep on November 23rd. Amber Group is valued at $3 billion, and Colander made it to the Forbes 30 under 30 list. And he wasn't alone. 53-year-old Russian billionaire Vyacheslav Taran was co-founder of crypto platform Libertex. His company confirmed that he was killed in a helicopter crash near Monaco on November 25th. The billionaire was flying from Switzerland with an experienced pilot. According to local media, the helicopter collided with a hillside. Local authorities are investigating his death. 
Around 700 Belgians arrived in court today in a mammoth jury selection process. The trial is for 10 men accused in the 2016 bombings in Brussels that killed 32 people. It's Belgium's largest ever trial. Hundreds of potential jurors filed through airport-style security checks and into eight waiting rooms. The attacks involved twin bombings at Brussels Airport and a third bomb on the Metro in March of 2016. The men are variously charged with murder and attempted murder in a terrorist context. They are also charged for leading or participating in the activities of a terrorist group. In accordance with the Belgian court procedure, the defendants have not declared whether they are innocent or guilty. The former president of Comoros has been sentenced to life in prison for selling the country's passports. The buyers were allegedly stateless people in Gulf countries. Ahmed Abdallah Sambi served as president of the Indian Ocean Island nation from 2006 to 2011. Prosecutors said he embezzled more than $1.8 billion from the passport sales. The figure is even larger than the country's annual GDP. Other officials involved in the scheme were sentenced to prison terms ranging up to 20 years. The defense lawyer argued that the trial was politically motivated. And still to come, volunteers at a cafe in Amsterdam are giving old electronics a new lease on life. People can bring in their broken electronics instead of making a new purchase. Get the full story after this break. And Australia updates energy efficiency requirements for new homes. Homeowners are coming up with creative ways to meet the revised standards. Stay tuned for more on that when we return. People in Amsterdam with broken electrical devices are taking them to a cafe where volunteers repair them. A team of mechanics restore the items, saving clients money and keeping them out of a landfill. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. Every Wednesday afternoon, these repairmen in Amsterdam come to this cafe to put their technical skills to good use. People bring along broken electrical devices such as kitchen appliances. These volunteers do their best to bring them back to life. If they can fix them, it means one less item is thrown away, and the owner doesn't have to shell out money on a replacement. It's very important, because we only save around 7,000 kilos in Amsterdam that does not end up in the landfill. Also because people with tight budgets live in this neighborhood. It's nice if things can be repaired. You can choose to put one euro in our donation pot, or you might lose 60 or 100 euros for a new device. It's nice if things can be repaired. This repair session is part of a network of dozens of cafes across the city where experts try to repair old items. Chris Biraput has brought in a broken coffee machine. He hopes it can be saved. I'm glad we have this workshop. The device was working well. It doesn't seem okay to throw it away. If something that might not be quite right can be easily repaired without throwing away. We will see if it can still be repaired. The volunteer repairmen enjoy giving these old electronics a new lease on life. 
Nee, het is geweldig. Het mooiste is als je s'avonds thuis komt na een dag van je... It's great. The best thing is when you come home in the evening after a day at work, knowing that you have helped a lot of people and made people go home very happy. Het is een dan wordt minder weggegooid. Dat is minder afval. 80% There are a lot of good things about that. It is good for the environment, less garbage and so on. About 80% of the things people bring in, we manage to fix. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. An underground World War II air raid shelter in London has been turned into a vertical farm. Coriander, pea shoots and watercress are grown there year-round and sold to nearby restaurants. Here in this underground World War II air raid shelter in Clapham, South London, herbs and salads grow under LED lights. The company Zero Carbon Farms believes this is how farming will look in the future. We use renewable energy, we use recirculating water, and we're able to grow the crops 365 days a year with little impact on the environment. Vertical farming is a rapidly expanding industry with billions of pounds being pumped into projects across the globe. Seeds are sown on carpet offcuts without soil. Crops are grown in stacked up trays. There's no need to use pesticides. Some see it as one solution to the food security challenge posed by population growth. We have the challenge that we're going to have another 2 billion people on the planet by 2050, and we ultimately need to develop more ways of growing more food to feed the world, and we don't have more farm space to do it, and we don't have another planet to, to do it on. Due to being 33 meters underground, the farm is well insulated, and the temperature is steady all year round. So that means that their yields and their efficiencies and their growing times are as optimized as possible. And that also means that we get incredibly nutritious, very, very tasty crops that, you know, have very long shelf life. So you get less food waste because of things like that. Zero Carbon Farms started seven years ago. Its pea shoots, rocket and watercress are sold to major retailers like Marks and Spencer, Waitrose, Tesco and local restaurants. Customers appreciate the freshness of the produce, which can make it onto a diner's table within two hours of harvesting. The future is very, very bright for this industry. I think that what really is kind of going to be the pivotal or fundamental pivot point is the right application of technology. Zero Carbon Farms will next year double its growing space, responding to strong demands. Australia is increasing energy efficiency requirements for new homes next October. It's more expensive to build, but homeowners could save money in the long run. And today's Andrew Thomas has more on the revised regulations. Wendy Patterson is currently living in only half of her home in the Canberra suburbs. She's renovating the other half to meet updated energy efficiency standards. This house was very uncomfortable uh, as far as the energy efficiency I was spending a great deal of money on electricity and gas bills. Richard Ings knows all about expensive bills. Previously, we were spending around $2,700 a year in electricity, around $1,400 a year in gas. This house is 100% all electric. In US dollars, that's a total of around $2,500 for energy bills. He has already renovated his home in the Canberra suburbs to meet the revised energy efficiency requirements. We've made it incredibly thermally efficient and it is saving us close to $3,000 a year in energy over the previous ex-Govy house. There are currently just over 2,500 homes in Canberra that meet the new standards. They can be expensive to build, 
but they don't have to be. You can do things like change where your windows are, change the size of the windows, change the layout of your house. That's what Jody Pipcorn has done with her home. The key is orientation, using the sun to heat the house. So the sun in the north comes into the house in winter and it's this floor, the concrete floor, is thermal mass and soaks up that heat and it re-radiates that heat at night. So even at 10 o'clock it feels like we've got floor heating. The design is also good for keeping her home cool. And what this does is it actually creates thermal mass in this space. So when the sun shines on it, it'll actually heat up and it'll release that heat at night. And then in summer, because the sun doesn't shine on it, it'll actually keep this room cooler. Achieving energy efficiency in the home can seem like a daunting task, but renovations can help homeowners meet the new standards. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, the FIFA Soccer World Cup ramps up security as political rivals U.S. and Iran faced off in the round of 32. And a pop-up bar in Los Angeles allows visitors to go back in time to the era of Blockbuster. But instead of videos, the VHS boxes represent different drinks. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. The U.S. defeated Iran in their showdown at the FIFA Soccer World Cup on Tuesday. The win pushes the U.S. into the knockout round of 16. Entity's Flinders Kingsley tells us more about the match. The U.S. bested the Iran side 1-0, but as protests rage in Iran and amid decades of political tension, the World Cup showdown between the U.S. and Iran was more than just a clash of sporting rivals. President Joe Biden made his comments on the match. USA, USA, that's a big game, man. When I spoke to the coach and the players, I said, you can do this. They went, ah, oh, they're going to, they did it. God love them. Anyway, just thought you might want to hear. The U.S. Soccer Federation earlier showed solidarity with Iranian protesters by displaying Iran's national flag without the Islamic Republic emblem, causing Tehran to make a formal complaint. I'm very happy to see that the players are starting to speak out as much as they can. Um, it's not easy to make a decision because we don't really know too much about what's going on. But my heart is with the people. I really want to see them succeed in, in what they want. And I hope that uh, you know this game and the World Cup has brought more attention to that. The game was held with increased security to prevent possible violence. Tensions between the nations have been heightened since the death in custody of 22-year-old Masa Armani on September 16th. Even with the tense political backdrop, fans say it's just about the game. I'm a football fan. I never take it it's into any American. political matter. It's, about like it's all about the football. I can hug an American guy right just now. It's not about that at all. We are just a football fan. That's all we're here for. You, you know what? Um, big physical team. I like the pace of the game. They come out. They came out fast. Uh, a lot of credit to Iran. You know, they, they, they look like they wanted it just as much. Uh, you know, just, just respect to that opponent all around. England also crushed Wales' hopes of entering the round of 16, defeating them 3-0 and making room for the US to qualify for the knockout round. The US finished in second place in Group B. The knockout round of 16 begins on December 3rd. Flinders Kingsley, NTD News. A nostalgic blockbuster-themed bar has opened in Los Angeles. The temporary pop-up allows visitors to go back in time to the era of VHS. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on this blast from the past. 
In Los Angeles, you can go back in time to the 80s and 90s with the new Blockbuster pop-up experience. Derek Barry is the head of experiences for bucket listers. He says the bar brings feelings of nostalgia. We wanted to not just create like a themed blockbuster where you went and you're like, okay, it looks like it, but like an experience where you're going to drink, you can go out and have fun, but you're you're still experiencing what you did at Blockbuster. It's essentially renting movies and things of that nature. So we came up with this really fun concept, and the idea is just to transport, pe transport people back to a better time. The speakeasy allows guests to come in, get their Blockbuster membership card, and peruse the VHS boxes on the shelves. All right, welcome to the Blockbuster experience. The first thing we do when we enter here is you're greeted by our lovely Blockbuster employee staff. Are you ready to make it a Blockbuster night? I sure am. So you are given one of these drink tickets right here, which is a membership card that acts as our live menu. But instead of videos, the VHS boxes represent different drinks. The libations include cocktails, beer, and wine. The really fun part and immersive part truly here is that every drink has a name and has a makeup on it. So let's just say I want the Pineapple Express. Great, love the Pineapple Express. I'm gonna make, make, make my way right over to this counter and I'm gonna hand this off to a bartender. The immersive experience is complete with blue and yellow decor throughout. Guests can relax on beanbags and even play retro video games. For those who do want to watch a movie, the pop-up also shows iconic 80s and 90s films in the garden. The Blockbuster Bar will be on Melrose Avenue until February 2023. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. In Bangkok, people brought steel vats, cardboard boxes, and all sizes of plastic containers to a mall. A cinema offered all-you-can-eat popcorn for roughly five and a half dollars. One man said he was taking home about 15 gallons of the salty snack in a huge buffet-style dish. He said he's planning to share it with his family and friends. The vendor challenged customers to come up with quirky container ideas, leaving cinema workers to shovel the popcorn into all sorts of buckets and boxes. For what would have been the price of a movie ticket, customers also got bottomless soda refills. Imagine if you could lose weight while you sleep. Well, the good news is you can. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Losing weight and getting into shape can be painful and challenging. The best weight reducing methods are eating healthy food and getting regular exercise. You can do these things during the day. But how can you use the time when you are sleeping to your advantage? Let's get some tips. Number one, sleep in a cool environment. Your metabolism is constantly burning calories. However, your metabolic processes work more quickly in the daytime and slow down at night. Some interesting research has been published in the journal Diabetes. It suggests that sleeping in low temperatures increases the body's metabolic process at night. These improved processes speed up fat burning capabilities. Number two, reduce your stress levels to keep cortisol low. A study was published in Current Obesity Reports. It has shown that prolonged stress can cause obesity. Releasing stress and calming yourself keeps your stress hormones, including cortisol, at normal levels. Reducing these levels decreases your body fat, so make sure your bedtime routine is a relaxing one. Try taking a warm bath, meditating, or listening to relaxing music. Number three, exercise before bed to burn fat. 
Hopping into bed right after dinner is one of the major causes of obesity. This is because your body's metabolic processes slow down during sleep. Hence, the last meal you eat right before going to bed will not get entirely metabolized. That means it will be stored as fat. It's advisable to do a little exercise before going to bed to speed up the fat burning process. And number four, try intermittent fasting. Many studies have found that intermittent fasting can help reduce weight while sleeping. The main purpose is to increase the body's fat burning processes and metabolic speed. Your fat burning process will increase during sleep and help you lose weight. Try these strategies for boosting your fat burning processes while sleeping and improving your overall health. Newly published research reveals a previously unknown dinosaur that had a remarkably flat head. The Transylvanosaurus platycephalus is named for where it lived, what is now Western Romania. Though this reptile roamed Transylvania millions of years before Dracula, about 70 million years ago during the late Cretaceous period. It walked on two legs, ate plants, and had a powerful tail, but only measured about six feet long. Back then, the region was actually a group of tropical islands. That explains why this dinosaur is smaller than its cousins found elsewhere. Animals on islands tend to be smaller than those on the mainland. It's what scientists call the island rule. Tourists in Rome were treated to a touch of British grandeur at an unlikely location. The Royal Navy Band on Tuesday played outside the Colosseum. The band was composed of 30 members in full uniform. It pumped out improvised pieces, as well as the Italian and British national anthems, while a group of curious tourists looked on. The musical flash mob was organized by the British Assembly in Italy. It took place near the Arch of Constantine on the Colosseum Square. The setting provided the backdrop for songs by Army of the Nile, Invincible, and Men of Music. The British Royal Navy Band is in the capital for a series of initiatives to honor the HMS Albion, a ship of the British fleet currently docked near Rome. Its presence is aimed to strengthen the British Navy's cooperation with numerous international partners, including Italy. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.